Hello and welcome to this week's podcast. This is Josh Carlson with Hilltop Community Church, and I just want to say we're really glad that you joined us today. If you're new to the church, make sure to visit us online at hilltopchurchnv.com and fill out one of the online connection cards. We'd love to get connected with you and just say hello. While you're there, you can also find out more information about the church, get connected with Bible studies, submit prayer requests, and even find other sermons on the website as well. Now, make sure that you have your coffee, have your Bible, and your notepad ready to go, because we're about to get started with today's message. Revelation chapter 2. This is the third church in the series of seven churches that Jesus gives the Apostle John a prophetic message as he is exiled on the island of Patmos. And so these different churches are going through different things. They're all located in modern day Turkey, um, Asia Minor. The the, the Roman mind would have just called that Asia. Uh, But as we go through this, we're seeing that they're dealing with different things. So the first church was Ephesus. And uh, as Jesus goes through this, he's going to tell John to write to a church. He's going to tell John something about himself. Jesus, he's re- he tells them to say something about himself to each church. And then he tells them, he gives them praise or commendation. He says, you're doing really good at this. And then he gets to the part that maybe we don't like as much, and he gives them a rebuke. He tells them, this is something that needs to be dealt with in your church. So we looked at Ephesus, and they had left their first love. Uh, they, they had all the right truth. They knew all the right doctrine, but they were offering it to people in a way that was kind of harsh. Okay, And so uh, that's the the first church, Ephesus. The second church, Smyrna, he actually doesn't give them any rebuke. They're going through persecution, and so he just encourages them. But there's this uh, note from Jesus to write. He, he tells John, write to the church at, today, Pergamum. Tell them this about me. Uh, give them praise for this. Rebuke them about this. Tell them to repent and be obedient. And then also tell them, I have a promise for those who do so. For those who repent and are obedient to, to Jesus, he has a promise that he wants to give to you. Okay, so that's kind of the pattern that we see as we go through these prophetic messages. Uh, this church that we're looking at today, what we're going to see is that as we look at this doctrine, morality, and purity are should be hallmarks of the church. So those who those of us who are Christians who are saved and are in Jesus Christ, we should have right teaching, doctrine. We should know what the truth about Jesus is. We should understand the gospel. You should be able to share the gospel with people. You should understand how doctrine then changes your life. Having the right truth about who Jesus is, it changes your morality. You used to live a certain way in the patterns of this world and in accordance with your flesh, but when you came into relationship with Jesus, those things had to go away. You stopped living in the patterns of this world and with the sensuality and desires of your flesh. You let go of that, and you don't, you don't go back there because you know there's no life there, and so you have a good definition of morality that comes from the scriptures and is affirmed by Jesus. Uh, you have then, you're, you have purity in your life. And so uh, God calls us to be holy as he is holy. And then we recognize, well, I can't do that. And he says, well, I have this person in the Trinity. His name is the Holy Spirit. And he is going to make you holy. He's going to cause you to live differently. He's going to set you apart and mark you out as someone that belongs to Jesus. And you're going to live different. And because you're living different, your life is going to be a living example, a manifestation of Jesus in your spheres of influence. And then the church is to be known for that. That's what the church is about. 
And so we need to have these things. We need to have right doctrine, God's type of morality, and purity, holiness. Those should be hallmarks of the church. Those should be hallmarks of our lives as individual believers. Now, what we don't want to use these things as, as weapons. God doesn't give us doctrine and morality and, and holiness so that we can badger people other, with it, other people with it. Instead, these are intended to be manifestations of truth that cut down the lies that exist within our lives and in the lives of others and in this world that we live in. And so that's what God is going to call this church in Pergamum to. He's going to tell them some things about who he is and how he wants them to live. How their lives should be something that's set apart and marked out and different than the world around them. When they, when they go into th this town that's known for being a university type town, okay, so it has the second largest library in the Roman world at this point in time, only behind Alexandria. There's some 200,000 volumes of books at this library in Pergamum. And so they're known for being people that are wise according to Greek tradition and Roman ways. There's different temples where they would worship gods like Zeus or Athena or Dionysus. Athena was the big one for them. Uh, and so they have uh, this idea that they're wise in terms of the way that the world thinks as far as philosophy and different things like that are concerned. They, they have all the books. They've read the books. Uh, they have the knowledge, right? They, they understand what human wisdom and how to apply this philosophy and different things to life. They, they get it, okay? Um, but then in the process of that, they're also worshiping false gods. And so anytime that we see the worship of false gods, the scripture draw this, draws this out over and over again, that instead of worshiping the creator, we worship created things. We come up with false gods. And when we worship false gods and practice idolatry, worshiping the creation over the creator, then our morality goes out the window because now we don't have to live in line with what the true God says, but we can define morality for ourselves. And then we're not marked out as holy and pure, but instead we're... Uh, we're, 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 uh, we're filthy because of sin. Sin makes us dirty. And we need somebody to deal with that for us. And so uh, this is where these Christians are living. They're living in this type of city. They're living in a place where there's lots of human knowledge and wisdom. Uh, the creation is worshipped over the creator. Sexuality and doing whatever you want with your sexuality is, is normative behavior within the city that they live. And so uh, Jesus has some words for them on how to live in that type of city. I wonder if you know any place like that, um, if you've ever been a place like that. Let me pray, and we'll look at this passage. So, Father, this morning, as we, as we learn from you, as we learn from the words that your son Jesus said to the Apostle John as he is on the island of Patmos about this church in Pergamum, I pray that, I pray that you would help us see how it... What did you intend for the writers or for the readers there in Pergamum to understand? And then how can we apply this to our lives today? Where are the parallels in the world that we live in today? What things maybe do we need to repent from? Do we need to change our minds about and trust you instead? Um, I pray that each of us would have ears to hear. As you say, if, if anyone has ears to hear what the Spirit says to the seven churches, God, I pray that we would open our ears to what you have to say to us. And that your spirit would then enliven our minds and our hearts to live a different way, think differently, and live differently in line with, uh, in line with your truth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So he says in verse 12, he says, Write to the angel of the church of Pergamum. Thus says the one who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan's throne is, yet you are holding... To 
onto my name and did not deny your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death among you where Satan lives. So he says, you live where Satan lives. And Satan, we know from the scriptures that Satan, uh, Jesus calls him the father of lies, that whenever he speaks, he tells a lie because that's who he is. He's a liar by nature. And so when he tells, when he speaks, he, he tells a lie. And he says, you live where Satan is. You, you live under the influence of his version of truth. Human wisdom then falls in line with his version of truth. And so instead of honoring God for who he is, uh, you then look to the creation and you live for what the creation has to offer. That's where you live. That library up on the hill, Pergamum was in a valley. And then up on the hill, there was an amphitheater and the library and all these different temples to the gods. And so it was this, you'd look up and you'd see paganism, pagan worship, worshiping the creation over the creator and, and human wisdom. He says, I understand that's where you live. That's what's elevated in your society. The worship of the creation over the creator and human wisdom. Uh, he says that's where Satan's throne is. And so the people of Pergamum, they would look up and they'd see this thousand foot climb up onto the hillside and they'd, they'd go, that's, that's Satan's throne. That's where he rules. What comes off of the hillside that influences our culture, what our culture elevates and puts on the top of the mountain actually isn't what God elevates. They'd understood this. And so they're surrounded by the false knowledge of truth. And there's interesting, God's word has a lot to say about this. If you look at Romans chapter 1, verses 22 through 25, it says, Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, four-footed animals, and reptiles. Therefore, God delivered them over to the desires of their hearts to sexual impurity so that their bodies would be degraded among themselves. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served what has been created instead of the Creator who is to be praised forever. Amen. And so that's what was going on in Pergamum. They were, they were raising up the creation. Uh, things that resembled uh, the power and might of man. Things that resembled the power and might of, of animals, right? Uh, created things. And so later on when you hop in your car and you realize that people worship their possessions, just some of them are even named after animals, right? That chariot that you hop in and it's named Taurus or maybe not Taurus, that's kind of a lame car, but they're named after animals, right? And so we, we, even the things that we fashion, right? Turn on your television, watch how many car commercials there are and look at how we worship the created things. Look at how we take what, what man can make and man's ingenuity and we go, that's, that's where life is. And that Jesus thing, I don't know about that. I think I'd rather try and find life in what I could own. I think I'd rather try and find life in what I can see and touch and possess. Rather than being a possession of God, I'd like to possess the world for myself. Rather than submitting to the creator, I'd like to elevate myself above him. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 says, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but is the power of God to those of us who are being saved. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and I will set aside the intelligence of the intelligent. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the debater of this age? Hasn't God made the world's wisdom foolish? For since in God's wisdom the world did not know God through wisdom, God was pleased to save those who believe through the foolishness of what is preached. For the Jews ask for signs and the Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, 
a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. Yet to those who are being called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God, because God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom, and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. Brothers and sisters, consider your calling. Not many of you are from... Were, were wise from a human perspective, not many powerful, not many of noble birth. Instead, God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God has chosen what is insignificant and despised in the world, what is viewed as nothing, to bring to nothing what is viewed as something, so that, the one who bo so that no one may boast in His presence. It is from Him that you are in Christ Jesus, who is became wisdom of God for us. For our righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, in order as it is written, let no one who boasts, boasts in the name of the Lord. Let the one who boasts, boasts in the name of the Lord. And so you have in this, this passage the idea that what, what the world views as significant, God says is insignificant. And what the world views as wise, God views as foolish. And, and so what we understand from the culture that we walk around in and live in uh, is actually God looks at it and he says, that's dumb. That's what he says. That's dumb. That's foolish. To try and find truth in what the culture around you has to offer, what the world around you has to offer, to try and find truth and wisdom and, and value and meaning and purpose in the culture that you live in, that's dumb. That's foolish. And instead, what, I, what God is going to do is He's going to make Christ the wisdom that comes down from Him. In, in Jesus, we find grace and truth. In Jesus, we have all that we need to know. Colossians chapter 2 says, I want their hearts to be encouraged and joined together in love, so that they may have the riches of a complete understanding and have knowledge of God's mystery, Christ. In Him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In Jesus are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. What's true and right about the world that we live in, what's true and right about my heart, what's true and right about the condition of who I am, what's true and right about who you are and your relationship with Him. All of the right ways to live, wisdom, it's taking what we know to be true and then applying it to our lives. You can't do that by yourself. You actually need God to do that through you. You don't have the ability to. We're, we're incapable of it on our own. We need Jesus. And he says, I know where you live. I know you live in a place that values human wisdom over what God has to say. I know you live in a place that elevates worshiping the creation over the creator. I know that you live in a place that tells you you can do whatever you want sexually. Because after all, you're God, not God. It's for you to determine, not him. You can make it up for yourself, determining what is right and wrong. And so I think the letter to this church in Pergamum really fits the day, doesn't it? It really matches the society that we live in that elevates human wisdom. It looks to science and it says in science we're going to find everything that we need. I'm not here to tell you science is bad. It's good. God created it. Do you know that Jesus is the scientist that created everything? Do you know he created everything down to the smallest molecule? He knows it all. He created all of it. Do you, do you know that math is not something that's foreign to him? That he created it? God is the creator. He knows these things. Many of you have studied science. You've gone through courses in mathematics. And you know that on the other side of it isn't just randomness. That there's an uncreated being that has put all of this together. 
I know you live in a culture that says you can do whatever you want. That the ultimate expression of yourself is probably your sexuality. I know, I know you live in that place. I know that the lies of the evil one are what permeate your society. I think the letter to the church in Pergamum sounds a lot like where we live. And he says, I know that you've held fast. You're holding to my name and you didn't deny your faith in Jesus. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was put to death among you. We don't know anything about him other than this verse. But apparently there was a guy named Antipas whose name means against all. His name means against all. That at some point in time he stepped up in the culture that he lived in and he said, no. It's not about worshiping the creation. It's, it's not about owning things. It's not about pleasure. It's not about drunkenness. It's not about carousing. It's not about these things. It's not about the indulgence of your flesh. It's not about philosophy. Like those, those books on the hill, there's some wisdom in them, and there's some things in those where we can learn some things. But if you think you can actually live that out in your own strength without God, you don't know what it is to be human. Because humans are frail and they fail. And we need Jesus. We need someone to lift us up. We need someone to make us new creations. We need someone to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us, to make us righteous, to create in us a new heart so that we can live a new way. We need a Holy Spirit. If God calls us to be holy and we can't do it on our own, but he puts his Holy Spirit in us, we need his presence in us so that we can have the strength to pattern our lives in a way that match his ways. We need, uh, did you know that you're spiritually dead before you come to a relationship with Jesus? Christ, that you can't even understand spiritual things until Jesus wakes you up to the truth, draws you out of darkness, gives you new life, and puts His Spirit, His Holy Spirit in you and sets you apart, marks you out as His own. You can't do it. If you haven't come to a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, you need to ask the Spirit of God to wake up your mind and transform your heart. You need Him to draw you. You know you're broken. You know you're not everything that you should be. You need to say, God, will you draw me? Will you wake me up? Will you show me for the truth for what it truly is? I, I've been living for sensual pleasures and I've been diving into all these different things. And every time I do it, I find that I end up taking advantage of somebody else. And my life isn't all that it, I, I act like it's cracked up to be. Like what you see on Instagram and my heart, they ain't the same thing, right? I'm putting out this image of everything is great, but deep down I'm broken. And you need him to wake you up. But this guy Antipas, he steps out and he's willing to do that. He's willing to step center stage within their culture and call it for what it is. He's not shy. He's not afraid. He's against it. He's for Jesus, but he's against the lie. Because the lie doesn't bring life. And so he says, you've been faithful even to the point of death here. I know where you live, where Satan is. You've been steadfast, most of you. But some of you, in verse 14, but I have a few things against you. You have some who hold to the teaching of Balaam and took, who took Balak to a place of a stumbling block or a trap in front of the Israelites to eat meat sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. 
In the same way, you have those who hold the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Now, when we went through Ephesus, one of the things that Jesus praised them for was that they hated the teaching of the Nicolaitans. He actually commended them for hating the lie. So it's good to hate the lie. He says, but here, you guys have fallen for it. And so who are Balaam and Balak? If you were to read Numbers 23 and 24, uh, Balaam was a prophet who counseled the Moabite king, Balak, to seduce the Israelites away from God through sexual immorality and idolatry. Did you know that sexual immorality is alluring to people? Did you know that? Did you know that when they sell a beer or a car or whatever it is they're selling to you on the television, most of the time there's somebody scantily clad there to sell it to you? I wonder why. I wonder if it's because it's alluring to people. I wonder if, uh, what, and, and if you were to look at, uh, if you were to look at what uh, uh, both Peter and Jude have to say about Balaam, they call him the prototypical false prophet. And here's what the prototypical false prophet does: he stands up and he says, "Look at all that out there! Isn't it great?" We should, we should worship that. Those mountains are gorgeous. Those possessions are great. You can make a lot of money and you could own a whole bunch of things. And in those things, you could find life. You, you, could, uh, you could have as many sexual partners as you want in whatever way that you want. And, and follow Jesus. You could be immoral and follow Jesus. You can choose for yourself what's right and wrong and live in accordance with the culture. It's hard to live against the culture. Remember what happened to Antipas? Wouldn't it be better if we just compromised a little bit? You know, and the other thing is, is when we stand up and we tell people that what they're living for has no life in it, that sexual immorality doesn't actually bring good. It actually brings disease, unwanted babies, and abortion. Like when we actually disregard what God has to say about sexuality, it doesn't end in good. It ends in bad. When you stand up and say that, man, that, that's a little harsh. So let's back off of that stuff. We don't want to actually teach the parts of the Bible that people don't like. Let's just go with the fun parts. I don't want to, you know. And so this is the prototypical false prophet. He says, let's worship possessions. He probably does too. Let's, let's worship what the world has to offer. Let's take the easy path, right? The path that destruction is wide. Let's walk down that one together. The path that's narrow. I don't know about that one. And that's what the prototypical false prophet does. He tells you that Jesus doesn't want your holiness. He tells you that Jesus doesn't care about your morality. He tells you that Jesus, he, yeah, sure, he died for your sin, but he doesn't care if you keep doing it. Have a good time. That Bible thing, eh, I could take it or leave it. Let's add some traditions from man to that. And in fact, let's make the traditions of men more important than the scriptures. Let's make what the, what the culture around us has to say more important than what the scriptures have to say. And he says there are many in Pergamum who have done this. They've compromised. They've fallen for the trap. 
He says they've eaten meat sacrificed to idols. And one of the interesting things is that if you look at Acts chapter 15 and the Jerusalem council, as Gentiles come into the church, there's, there's three things that he says, don't do this. Like, we're going to let go of you having to be Jewish to be Christian, but don't worship idols, don't eat meat sacrificed to idols, and don't engage in sexual immorality. Don't do it. Like, you can be Gentile in every other way, but don't do that and follow Jesus. And what we see over and over again within church history and within the culture that we live in is the rejection of those things. You can worship the creation and follow Jesus. You can do whatever you want sexually and follow Jesus. You can practice idolatry and immorality and follow Jesus. And the Bible says no over and over and over again. To the point where, as I teach through the Bible, I've had some people say, you know, would you get off the sexual immorality thing? Like, we've heard it. Well, when we stop studying the Bible, I'll stop talking about it. Like, you have to read a different book. This idolatry thing becomes pretty big. But one of the other things that we see is... For this to infiltrate the church and be accepted, it's a pretty big fall. Uh, for you to say, I'm a follower of Jesus and I do what I, whatever I want with my sexuality. For you to say, I'm a follower of Jesus and I worship the creation. These things don't go together. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul says, I wrote to you in a letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. I did not mean immoral people of this world, or greedy, or swindlers, or idolaters. Otherwise, you'd have to leave the world. So if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus, you're learning. It's okay. But if you're here this morning and you know Jesus and you accept sexual immorality or these other things, like greediness or idolatry, worshiping the creation over the creator or a swindler, that's somebody who tricks other people to get their money. If, if you think that these things are okay, Paul says, I actually wrote to you not to associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister and is sexually immoral, greedy, an idolater, verbally abusive, a drunkard, or a swindler. Do not even eat with such a person. He says, so if you have people in your church who claim to be followers of Jesus and reject God's version of morality and, I, and what idolatry is, he says, kick them out and don't even eat with them. Because the church is not to be known for that. Whoa. This last week, um, one of our major political figures, uh, she was denied communion by her church. And rightfully so. Because advocating for, the in, in, advocating for the death of the innocent and saying I'm a follower of Jesus is nonsense. They don't go together. You don't advocate for the death of the innocent and say I love Jesus. It doesn't work. Paul says, for what business, uh, business is it of mine to judge outsiders? Don't you judge those who are inside. In other words, when we look at the outside world, of course unbelievers act like unbelievers. 
Of course those who aren't spiritually alive don't understand what God has to say. Of course that's the case. But for people who are claiming to be followers of Jesus Christ and living a lifestyle and affirming false lies, affirming things that aren't true about God, he says that's not a Christian. Remove the evil person from among you is what he says. So Jesus is saying, you guys in Pergamum, you've got some people inside the church who are affirming things that are not biblical. You have some things, some people in your church who are affirming things that match the culture and it's convenient in the culture, but it isn't what God has revealed to be true. Paul says, I wouldn't even eat with somebody like that. Somebody who says, I love Jesus and he's not my Lord. That's nonsense. And if you look at the numbers across Christianity, one of the things that you see surveys that are done is that there's a, a 60 to 70% of Americans would say, yes, they're, they're a Christian. They would say they're a Christian. When you get into the details and you ask them questions about a biblical worldview, it's single digit percentage wise that people actually believe the Bible. So there's a whole mess of people wandering around saying, I love Jesus, but the Bible ain't for me. It doesn't work. Because what you have at that point in time is a made-up Jesus. You have a false God. A false God that indulges you in what? Sin. Well, Jesus doesn't indulge us in sin. In fact, his next words, he says, So repent, verse 16. Otherwise, I will come to you quickly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He says, repent. You better change your mind about these things. Because if you don't, I will come and fight you with the sword. Jesus is the one who holds the sword. When Antipas, right, so this guy, he gets, he gets uh, executed by the Roman government. We don't know exactly all the circumstances around that, but we know that the way that Roman executions were done. Uh, they would have been tried and found guilty, and then once they were tried and found guilty, they would have been taken to a place of execution, and they would have been led there by Roman soldiers. And one of the things that was very common in these types of executions is the person that led the procession carried the weapon of execution. And so, very likely with Antipas, a sword, the governor's sword, was carried and led him to the place of execution, and then he was killed with it. And Jesus is saying, the world judges you for loving me, but if you love the world, I'll judge you. He says, repent. You've got to turn away from that. You've got to change your mind. That's what the, the Greek word is, metanoia. It means a change of mind. It means you're thinking one way about idolatry or immorality. And now God is saying, think different. And the different matches what God has revealed in the scriptures. It doesn't match the culture. It doesn't match what you want it to be. Unless your heart is being transformed so that you actually want what God wants. Then you will want God's version of morality. He says, otherwise come quickly or I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Hebrews 4.12 says, for the word, the word of God is living and effective and sharper than any double-edged sword, penetrating as far as the soul and the spirit, joints and marrow. It is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. No creature is hidden from him, but all things are naked and exposed to the eyes, listen to this, to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Do you get this? 
Like we sing that song, you're so beautiful, you're so beautiful, you're so glorious. One of the lines they could add to that is you're so terrifying. <laughs> because he holds the sword and could judge us, should, will judge us. Like when John is, is, he has the vision of Jesus and he sees him in all of his glory. John falls on his knees and Jesus, what does he do? He lays his hands on him. He tells him, don't be afraid. Because here's the thing about Jesus. While he is terrifying when you're in your sin and he holds the sword to rightly judge you. Do you know he fell on the sword for you? He, he, he had every right to condemn us and execute us and instead... He carried his own device of execution. Instead, he fell on that sword for you. And so, while, while he takes sin very seriously, he doesn't leave us without help. He doesn't leave us without hope. Instead, he falls on the sword that you and I deserve so that we can be saved from the consequences of our sin. And just like John lays his hand on us and says, don't be afraid, and raises us up to new life. So repent. Stop thinking like the world thinks. Stop doing what your flesh wants. Change your mind about those things. They're not where life is found. And instead, recognize that there is a God. His name is Jesus. He's the only true God. And he has given his life. He has fallen on the sword that he could execute you with so that you could be freed from the consequences of your sin and given a new start, a new life, a brand new heart. And that's what he says in verse 17. Let anyone who has ears to listen to what the Spirit says to the seven churches. If you have ears, listen. Will you pay attention to what God says to you? To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone. And on that stone, a new name is inscribed, which no one knows except the one who receives it. What's manna? Manna in the Old Testament, the Israelites, they, they get out of slavery in Egypt and they're in the wilderness and God provides them food with the manna. They, they get done with that wilderness experience and they had taken some of the manna and put it in a golden jar and that jar was then placed in the Ark of the Covenant. Later on, they lose the Ark of the Covenant. A group of people comes in, they take the Ark of the Covenant and the contents of it are lost. In Jewish tradition, the understanding is that Ark still exists and so do the contents of it. And that this hidden manna that's in this jar will one day be brought out when Jesus, when God, the Jewish people wouldn't look to Jesus, when the Messiah comes and uh, regathers all of his people, that manna will be revealed. That's one view. Uh, the other understanding is that in John chapter 6, Jesus is talking about the bread of life, and he tells them that they receive manna from heaven, but he is the true bread which came down from heaven. What do you need bread for? To live, right? Unless you're like me and then it just hangs around your weight or your waist. But you need bread to live. And so Jesus is saying, I am the bread of life. And he's saying that he is the true manna that has been revealed. And so he is the one who's going to give us life. He says, I'm going to give you life. If you'll repent and listen and conquer and have victory in him, he's going to give you life. Jesus is the source of life. And this white stone, uh, the white stone was something that within the Greek culture, it was given to the winner of games or sporting events. Um, and it was used as a pass to then get into parties. So you enter into a contest, 
you win the race, whatever it is, whatever event you're in, you get the white stone, you take the white stone to the party, they give you, in, they give you entrance, entrance to the party. Okay. Uh, the other thing that it was given to those who were, had the right to vote in civic matters. So you would have a white stone with something inscribed on it, and you had the right to show up and vote in uh, things that were concerning your city or your, the, the nation or kingdom that you lived in. It was also used to write official decrees, so a larger stone. Uh, Pergamum actually held one of these decrees in the imperial cult, um, the temple to the, the Roman emperor. And the, the stone that they had was uh, engraved with a marking that indicated that Caesar Augustus's birthday would be a Roman holiday. And that Roman holiday would roll around and you would celebrate all things Roman. Okay. Now, what Jesus is saying is he's saying, I'm going to give you a white stone if you overcome. I'm going to give you something that marks you out as victorious. Not, not in a race, but in life. I'm going to mark you out as someone that is victorious, someone who has defeated sin. And then this, the other thing this white stone is going to do is it's going to give you entrance to the party. Do you know that there's a party when Jesus returns? That's called the wedding feast of the Lamb. And so uh, ideally, I mean, kind of the idea this is giving is you carry that white stone and, and it's something that Jesus has given to you and it marks you out as a victorious over sin and somebody that has entrance to the party. You have the right to enter in and feast with the king. He then also says that this, this stone was something that would mark you out as part of a kingdom, part of a, a city or a, a nation, right? And so we understand that we are citizens of heaven. And so this, this white stone was, that's what Jesus is giving us. It's, it's being part of his, his kingdom. You're victorious. You have a right to enter the party. You have a right to feast with the king. And so what Christians during this time would do, they would actually wear a little white stone as an amulet. And it reminded them that they were victorious over sin. Not because of what they had done, because of what Jesus had done. It, re it would remind them that they were citizens of heaven. It would re remind them that they have the right to talk to the king. They have the right to boldly approach the throne of God. Not because of what they've done, but because of what Jesus has done for them. And so he offers us, Jesus offers us this better white stone. Better than any earthly kingdom could give you. Even the greatest one, like Rome. Uh, Jesus offers a white stone that doesn't crumble or fade, but one of eternal value. Uh, he offers one that's better than temporal power, prestige, or pleasure. His party is not one of drunkenness and debauchery. Uh, his pleasure is not at the expense of others with no thought for consequences. His power isn't used to harm the innocent, but to protect them and transform other hearts to do the same. Jesus' prestige is not crumbling columns of human ingenuity, but divine glory of inestimable worth that he shares with those who trust him. You have to see this. See, Jesus, he's not just a better way, and he certainly is a better way, but he is the way, the truth, and the life. Apart from Jesus, everything you experience is a cheap knockoff of the original truth. And it's twisted to deceive you into thinking that it's legitimate. That's what the best lies are. They're really close to the truth. But those who have the mind of Christ have moved on from childish things and childish reasoning and are growing up into the image of God in Christ. We don't fall for the tricks. As Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, we're not deceived by every wind of human doctrine. But instead we're grounded and we're steadfast in Christ. We don't go for these things. And so the question you have to walk away with this morning is, are you growing up into the image of God in His Son Jesus? Are we doing that together? 
Have you moved on from foolish temporal pleasures? Or do they still hold you? Have you trusted, and I mean really trusted, in Jesus for salvation, new life, and identity in Jesus? Are you really going to him? For this, he fell on the sword for me. I deserve death, and he died for me. He is giving me life, and he has given me a new identity and a new heart and marked me out as his own. Do you really believe it? Because there are many who have heard this message dozens and dozens and dozens of times, and you've played the game, you've hidden the back, you've sat on your hands, and you've told the Holy Spirit, not today. Does Jesus have 100% are you holding back? Not, not this. I mean, if you're here to test the water, I want you to come back. Feel free to test the water. But eventually, Jesus is going to put you in a position where you have to jump in. Not one foot in, one foot out, but in. 100%. Because less than 100%. Half-hearted is no heart at all. And so he's calling you to be in. All in. And here's the other thing I need you to understand about Jesus. Is he is worthy of you being all in. He is worthy of you being all in. He is both the one who holds the sword and has the right to judge and condemn you. And he's also the one who fell on the sword to forgive you and give you life. You can't do that. Nobody you've ever met can do that. He is worthy. The other thing I want you to hear is that any softened version of Jesus where he is not the one who has the right to judge. Any softened version of Jesus where he's sort of ho-hum about sin and it's okay for you to have some in your life and maybe deal with it later. No. That is not the Jesus of the Bible. The other thing is, in any Jesus that you hear that wouldn't forgive you, any Jesus that your forgiveness is dependent upon your performance and what you can do, that's not in the Bible. He is both fully He's both 100% in authority and has the right to judge us and he's completely gracious and merciful to forgive. Jesus is both of these things. The rightful judge and the scapegoat that has forgiven you. That has taken his sin upon you to give you life. Let me pray. Father, this morning we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth of who you are, the truth of who we are. Uh, the, the fact of the matter is, without you, God, we wander around this world pretty aimlessly trying to find life and never really having it. We get some knockoffs and we get some, some cheap imitations here and there that fool us, but we always know that something's missing, and that something is you. And so for those of us who are in your family, who have received forgiveness and have repented of an old way of life that rejects you, God, we thank you that you've made us your children. We thank you that you've given us new life. We thank you that you've made us new creations. God, if there's any way in us, as the psalmist says, as if there's, search me, oh God, if there's any hurtful way in me, show me what it is. I want to repent from it. I want to continue to grow in the image of your son. For those who have been playing the game, checking the box, raising their hand as a Christian, but never really following you. God, I pray that today would be the day that they get all in. Stop playing the game. Stop pretending. 
truly repent and that your spirit would give them life. God, for those who are here this morning and they're just sort of putting their toe in the water to see what this Christianity thing is about, I I pray that they see you for who you truly are, Jesus. You are the one who has the right to judge them for their sinfulness and rebellion against you. But you're also the one who forgives them by sacrificing yourself on their behalf to forgive their sins. I pray that they would trust you this morning. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for tuning in and joining us today. We hope that this message encourages you to continue taking steps towards seeking and understanding God's truth. The dream is that Hilltop is a home for the growing family of God, and we're so glad that you are a part of the family.